Today's reading is John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The word of the Lord. You know, we get kind of a very stark juxtaposition between the passage that we read last week and this week, back to back in the Gospel of John. You know, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. You know, the Jesus who is the source of and the complete and total life of the party, right? Who brings uh, even more joy to a joyous occasion. And then here we get a Jesus, you know, angry, turning over tables, um, driving out animals. And so, you know, we go almost, which Jesus is it? You know, we, we, we like the Jesus at the wedding. We like the Jesus who, you know, gives us even more wine, even more of the good things, but, but it's not a different Jesus. You know, that, that, that if we want the Jesus who's going to bring us so much joy, we also need the Jesus who is going to turn over the tables, upend the way that we normally do things. And that's part of his grace and his goodness, too. Now, as we read this passage, something else, though, came in, into my mind. And, and it was this saying, this very short saying I learned in seminary. But it's one that's been really helpful. It stuck with me. And it's, it's, it's simple. It's a text without context is pretext. A text without context is pretext. That's a very important interpretive principle. And, and, and the aphorism... Is, is meant to protect us from, from twisting or, I think, weaponizing Scripture to say what it is we already want it to say or, want it to say, or, or to justify what we already is that we agree with. And suffice it to say, when I, when I read this passage about Jesus, I mean, this act, all of the Gospels contain this passage, but, but um, John does it in his own way. And it's really this passage in Jesus that, that became almost a, a meme, actually, in the summer of 2020. And uh, it was a text that I, I saw used pretextually to support specifically what happened within the context of Minneapolis following George Floyd's murder. And so we remember, right, the massive demonstrations, some of the largest street demonstrations, maybe the largest street demonstration movement in our country's history against police brutality, racial injustice. And I'm not, when I talk about how the meme was used uh, and this scripture became a meme, I'm actually not talking about those at all. 
you know, I, I, I think it's so important. One of the things that makes this country, country so great, right, is the ability to gather and to demonstrate and protest and petition and try to rally public support behind your cause. You know, that's one of the, the signs of what makes this country such an incredible place, right? Such an interesting place. Uh, but we also saw that there were people who, for whatever reason, decided to engage in riotous and destructive behavior. And, and in our own city, we know that the kind of scars that those have left, sowing anarchy and chaos and, and fear. And, 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 you know, things were just so, uh, if you remember that feeling of things just kind of spiraling out of control in that moment and the fear that came along with that. And, and things were so bad that there was a, right, we had the curfew and the National Guard was sent in. And I just remember the, the feeling, right, of, of, of fear and of powerlessness before those forces that were really doing this under the cover of darkness. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're, you're sympathetic, deeply sympathetic towards those who are gathering under the light of day, exercising their First Amendment rights. And, and I remember just, you know, expressing and seeing people express dismay at, at the looting and the rioting and, and, and seeing, you know, people, other people do the same. And, and, then, and then other people would respond, you know, if, especially if these were Christian people saying this, they would respond with, you know, a picture of Jesus overturning tables in the temple and driving out uh, the animals, using this as a justification. So, you know, I say or someone says riots are bad, and the reply is Jesus turned over tables in the temple. And so... Um, well, I think that's wrong. I think another thing I try to embody is to be as like, charitable as possible when I'm encountering an argument or a position that I don't understand, to, to try to understand where that's coming from. And I think what people were sharing that meme were hearing from people who were saying riots are bad, or they were saying that, well, no, like, it was sort of a, a distracting technique, right, to, to, to kind of change the subject. And, and so people felt as though, you know, saying riots are bad, you're saying riots are worse than racial injustice or riots are worse than, you know, police killing unarmed uh, people, unarmed black men in particular. And so I, I can understand um, wanting to kind of take up a, a defensive posture if you feel like something that's a grave injustice is being minimized or if the subject you feel like is being changed. I understand that. But I don't think that we should ever use Scripture as a justification for doing bad things, even if we believe that those things are related to a righteous cause. I think the same thing is wrong, why it's wrong for the same reason, why people invoke that story of David and Bathsheba to defend the personal immorality of, of politicians from, from Donald Trump to, to Bill Clinton, right? Yes, God uses and used flawed and sinful human beings to accomplish his purposes. If he didn't, we'd be all out of luck. But there's a big difference between saying that and using Scripture pretextually to defend what cannot be defended or justify what's unjustifiable. And I say, you know, couldn't, last week, you know, the sort of country focusing on, or week before last January 6th, and the rioters, insurrectionists, ne'er-do-wells, whatever. It's like, couldn't they use this same text as scriptural support for their actions in the U.S. Capitol? And I'm sure, I didn't bother to do this, but I'm sure if you Googled around, uh, there were plenty of people who did invoke this as a justification for their actions. 
And so always, 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 it's important to remember that a text without context is pretext. And so this passage isn't about Jesus blessing, you know, rioting in service of a righteous cause. So if it's not about that, what is it about? That's what I want to look at this morning. And as I said, it's one of the few stories that's found in all four Gospels. And, but John, in relation to the other three, he does his own thing. Because in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put this passage. It's really the event that marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. It's, it's the, his action in the temple. You know, there's that question, why did Jesus die? That's a very profound question. Because if he was this teacher of peace, love, and righteousness, why would anyone bother to kill someone doing that? doesn't make any sense, even if they found them annoying. Like, you wouldn't kill someone for that. So what Jesus does here in the temple, though, it's, it's extremely threatening on multiple levels. And so every gospel understands that this story is crucial to understanding how Jesus ended up on a cross. And, and so John puts it here, for his own reasons, his, his theological reasons. It's, it, it's, it's John, you know, he arranges the events of Jesus' life, not so much in terms of a chronological order, but, but, a, but a theological order. He's trying to answer that question, why? What is the meaning, the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? And so first, I think, you know, clearing the way by saying what this doesn't mean, what it's not about, and some of the interpretations of it purport to be very radical. But, but this passage is truly radical in, 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 in the kind of dictionary definition of that word, getting to the root, getting to the core of who God is and how we relate to him and how we can look at the world. And this passage isn't radical because Jesus is condoning violence. This touches on, you know, kind of what I said at the outset about this passage being a proof text for writing. But an even broader point here is that Jesus doesn't commit an act of violence here. The whip that he makes wasn't one that would be used on human beings. In fact, in all likelihood, it was, it was twisted together reeds. And so it was the kind of thing, you know, someone who herded and drove animals would use. So Jesus, you know, isn't forming this whip to go to the animal sellers and go to, to the money changers and, and to, you know, physically assault them. And I'm not personally a strict pacifist, but in the New Testament, in the message and ministry of Jesus, there is a strong inclination towards nonviolence. Very strong. And what made, you know, the modern civil rights movement so powerful was its deeply Christian commitment to the principle of nonviolent direct action. You read anything about the history of the, the movement and its leaders, you know this was not a sign of weakness, but of great strength. That it took training, it took practice, it, it took subjecting yourself to all kinds of nastiness in order to have the spiritual strength to respond in the way of Jesus. When someone spits on you, when someone insults you, when someone hits you, when someone threatens you, when someone uh, uses you know, racial epithets towards you, demeans you, degrades you, humiliates you, the most normal and natural feeling is anger. And the most normal and natural human response is to respond in kind. 
it's innate to want to fight back using, you know, measure for measure. But tomorrow is, you know, MLK Day, and, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it's easy, right, to become cynical because, you know, you feel like maybe someone gets deployed as sort of a, a, a cardboard cutout of a real human being. And, and a movement, you know, can become a sort of morality play. And that's never what I want to do. I know history is complex. People are complicated. But, but I do think that... Um, it's fair to say that the modern civil rights movement is, is the greatest example we have of, in the modern era of, of the application of radical Christian principles to you know, applying those principles to social injustice to enact what is truly one of the most profound social, moral, and political transformations ever seen in the history of the world. You know, the peaceful ending of, of racial apartheid in America, it's a massive achievement uh, rooted deeply in the theology and practice of uh, the black church in America. And that's just a profound thing to think about, that, that we live in a different world today, a profoundly different world today, because the faithful action of, of, of so many deeply committed Christian people within the last two generations. It's, it's incredible the transformation that we've seen in our country from you know, one of the most probably racist, racist societies to the world in, in, into, you know, this might be controversial, but I think one of the least within a generation and a half. And that, and that doesn't downplay the ongoing existence. It just, it, it's to highlight the achievement of what God was able to do. And all of this was largely accomplished through the application of the principle of nonviolence, not, not disruptive in any way, I'm not saying that, but direct action that we see Jesus actually engaging in in our passage. So ironically, well, well, well people might want to use this protectually as supporting that kind of violent action. It's actually doing the opposite. The other way this passage gets interpreted is that Jesus is here, and, and this is, if you grew up in the church at all, uh, I, I think this is one of the main ways that it gets interpreted is that um, Jesus is rejecting the unjust practices of the money lenders and the animal sellers, saying that they're basically charging like exorbitant exchange rates or they're, they're selling their, their sacrificial animals at a highly inflated cost. So it's, they're engaging in economic exploitation of a captive audience at the temple. And, you know, there were, why were there money changers in the temple courts? Because if you were coming on pilgrimage, you had to pay the temple tax. That's how the temple operated. And, 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 and you had to pay that tax in a certain kind of coinage because the other secular coinage that was used in the ancient world had, you know, the images of, of, of rulers on it. And so the idea was that, you know, that was blasphemous to put into the temple treasury uh, uh, coins that had the image of Caesar or some other, um, some other leader. And so you needed to change your money so that, that they were providing a very valuable service. And the reason there were people selling animals is because, you know, at a pilgrimage, at a festival like the Passover, where people would come from all over the diaspora, all over the Mediterranean world, it, it makes no sense to bring your sacrificial animals with you to the temple. I mean, that's like going on vacation and packing a U-Haul truck full of your furniture in order to, you know, outfit uh, the hotel you're going to stay in. You never do it. It was, it was an important service that they were providing. 
And so there's nothing within this text to to indicate that Jesus objected to the presence of the money changers or the animal sellers because of their unjust business practices. According to the law of Moses, uh, they were engaging in, in, in perfectly necessary and legitimate business. You know, if these guys, if we were to learn they were charging, you know, fair market prices, would Jesus have said, well, no, it's okay. I'm not going to cleanse the temple. He still would have, because what Jesus is doing here is even more radical than attacking profit gouging. Jesus' attack isn't on practices that are happening in the temple around the margins. His attack is, is really on the entire system that the edifice represents. He, he stops the entire operation at this Passover as a symbolic enactment of what he is going to accomplish on the cross. And so here we have a confrontation between the temple and the tabernacle. In the prologue of John's gospel, he says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that word he uses for flesh is the same word that they used in the Old Testament for, for um, you know, setting up the tabernacle, which was the portable, movable temple that the Israelites had before Solomon built the permanent temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus himself is the tabernacle who's going to replace the temple. You know, the temple represented God's dwelling place on earth. It was the visible sign of God's promise to be present with and for his people. It was the place where atonement was made through the offering of sacrifice. It was a place where worship was offered on a daily basis, where, where, where pious Jews across the world would turn in prayer three times a day like Muslims turn towards Mecca today. So Jesus, what he does is, is he really throws a giant wrench in the gears, if only for a moment, of the entire temple system. And it's his way of announcing that he is going to render what happens in the temple redundant. That his death is going to be the sacrifice that puts an end to sacrifice. That as, as, as he is the word became flesh, he is the meeting place between heaven and earth. The very presence of God that was enthroned between uh, the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place. He is that. And everything that the temple was and represented was just a foretaste, preparing people for who he actually is. That's why he has the utter audacity to say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's not talking about the one they've been working on for 46 years. But his body, he equates his body with the temple itself. Again, this is why Jesus is, won't do to call him a you know, great moral teacher. Uh, I think this passage especially gets at the heart of what C.S. Lewis was talking about with his trilemma. Lord, lunatic, or liar. And so the radical conclusion of our passage is this, that what the temple represented has been replaced by Jesus. That means that he is where we can encounter God. He is where we receive atonement. He's the focus of our worship. He's where we turn in prayer. It's, it's all about Jesus, and that's the inescapable conclusion that John wants us to reach. And that's more revolutionary 
than a riot. It's more radical than any economic critique. It's radical in that it gets to the very, very, very core of who God is, how we can know him, and how we can relate to him. So it's an invitation into a radical faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please pray with me.